Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Mindful You podcast. Today, we are very blessed to have a special guest, Tupin Jinpa. Jinpa is the interpreter to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, an accomplished writer, a Tibetan Buddhist scholar, an academic of Eastern and Western philosophies, a teacher, and the founder of the Compassion Institute. It is our honor to speak with him today, and he is also presenting at the Naropa University tomorrow for the Lens Foundation. And we're really honored to have him. And I just want to say, how are you doing today? Thank you, David, for inviting me on your podcast, Mindful You. And as you mentioned that uh, this is part of a series of events connected with, you know, tomorrow's lecture that I'm delivering at Naropa University, the Lens Distinguished Lecture Series. Beautiful. Yes. We're so happy to have you. And so... You know, just to jump right into it, while I was researching you, I've noticed there was a series of events that allowed you to create a unique educational path for yourself from growing up in a boarding school, developing an interest in spirituality, learning English, becoming the interpreter to His Holiness. You studied at Cambridge University as a student. You became a teacher. Then you developed the Compassion Institute. You've done so many things. And I'm curious for our listeners, could you briefly describe this journey that you've taken and also the interests while you were learning all these things along the way? Thank you for your interest, actually. If, if we look back at my life, it feels as if there was a conscious plan or a trajectory. <laughs> but to be frank, um, it was more organic. I was... You know, I grew up as part of the first generation of uh, Tibetan refugee children in India in the early 60s. And part of that experience was to be separated from our parents and put into boarding school, which was set up specifically for the Tibetans. So that's how my first years of school began. And then later, while I was at one of the Tibetan refugee schools, a group of monks came to visit us. Later, I found out it was part of their teacher training. And my abiding kind of enduring memories of my boarding schools were two things. One is hunger. The food was really poor. Oh, no. <laughs> and the second one was boredom. Uh, I wasn't intellectually <laughs> challenged. It was a boarding school, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> so um, when the monks turned up, they spent about a month and each of the classes was assigned one monastic member. And... The monk who was assigned to our class taught us basic debating skills, you know, elementary debate. So this is part of a Tibetan monastic education system, later I found out. And I was fascinated. So as a kid of about nine years old, I just wanted to be like them, you know, like these monks. You know, I associated monkhood with, you know, intellect and great mind and this sharp, quick mind, analytic. Such a young age too. Yes. So I was really struck by this. And of course, also, also the, there were two permanent resident monk teachers at our school. 
And among all the teachers, those two monks also had a sense of serenity, calmness, and even physically in terms of their dress and clothes, they looked kind of clean. So there was a kind of a, almost like a kind of a glow to their appearance. So all of this struck me deeply. So I just wanted to become a monk. So that's why I chose to become a monk. And then initially I ended up in a small monastery, which was not really an academic monastery. So it took a while before I finally found my feet in a real academic monastic community. And while I was there, then I had more opportunities. My command of English really came more as a coincidence. When I left school after grade four to become a monk, I had the basic ability to read English. I couldn't speak. But the monastery at that time was based in Dharamsala in northern India, where His Holiness's current residence is based. This is in the early 70s. It was at the height of the hippie movement. You know, there were a lot of Westerners coming to India, staying for a long period of time and learning about Buddhism. Where the monastery was located is in a forest. And this was quite close to many places where some of these Westerners were staying. So I seized the opportunity to be able to converse with them and then learn English, improve English. And that's how I managed to learn English. And then once I began to improve my English, of course, then a whole another world was open, became open to me. So that's what then eventually led to, you know, accidentally becoming Isolens the Dalai Lama's <laughs> translator, which then auspiciously. You know, yeah, which then <laughs> made me uh, seriously think about formally improving my English to get a formal Western education so that I could serve him better. So which then led me to go into Cambridge and then the rest is basically history. Yeah. That's beautiful. It's almost like someone's interest in your culture made you interested in their culture. It's like you guys traded between <laughs> exactly, culture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so beautiful. Yeah. So, I mean, in a sense, you weren't essentially looking to do English, but you just found people there that allowed you to learn it, right? So you had a yes. lot of yes. mentors yeah. that were yeah. from the English world. Exactly. And also one of the amazing things about English is that once you have a basic command of the language, a whole world, another world opens to you. So imagine as a young kid in the early teens, being able to start reading comics, you know? And, you know, so the whole kind of, you know, there's a history of the world, pictorial history of the world. So none of these are available in Tibetan. So uh, once I began to improve my English, then I realized its usefulness. And it's brought a level of joy, which is not open to me, you know, through learning about the world, you know, through learning about the world and history and other cultures and so that's what then made me much more motivated. It was initially as a kind of a hobby, actually. Yeah. So you became a monk after fourth grade? Yes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what I was doing in fourth grade. It feels like such a thing to take on. How did that happen? Did you get any pushback from friends? or? Well, actually, um, joining monastery is not a that uncommon thing uh, among Tibetans, because historically or traditionally, monasteries were pretty much the only place where someone could get an education in Tibet, in old Tibet. So uh, the you know, membership of the monasteries are quite large. But what was unusual was that in India, in the exile community, at that time, it was fairly rare. Because imagine my parents' generation, they are newly arrived refugees, 
don't speak the language of India are forced to do manual labors like road construction camps. And then they see their children going to school and they see school education associated with employment. So uh, someone who has an opportunity to have received educate, formal education, becoming a monk was at that time not that common. So my father, my unfortunately, sadly, my mother had already passed by then, but my father was, at that time, he was himself had become a monk, but he was quite opposed to the idea of me joining monastery because I was doing well at school and, uh, you know, I have two younger siblings. So he probably saw in me as someone who's going to take responsibility when I grow up, get a job, you know. So there was a pushback from him, but I was so inspired by the examples of the monks in the schools that I just wanted to be like them. So I think something was pulling me. Yeah, I mean, the radiantness is yeah. very attractive. So yeah. it's yeah. something that I think all people want to emulate. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and find it ourselves, you know. <laughs> Yeah, very cool. So I've noticed you have a very interesting educational path because you study Tibetan Buddhism. You've also studied Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy. So you study these, you've studied like many spiritualities and philosophies and they're all coming together. I'm curious why the study of these philosophies and have you noticed a common theme between these different ideologies and the way they express themselves? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, to be Honest, uh, when I began to formally study at Cambridge, the choice of philosophy was a pragmatic one because I knew that uh, doing an undergraduate, you know, in North America, it's four years, but in, in the UK, it's three years. And, and three years is a substantial period of time. And so I had to be smart in choosing what subjects I wanted to study because my primary aim was not so much the content itself, but more the ability to have an opportunity to formally perfect my English, to have a professional English. Um, so choice of philosophy was more of a secondary, partly because I felt philosophy is probably the modern discipline that has the closest affinity to the monastic academic training I went through. And also my understanding was that learning, doing philosophy degree might also help me in my interpretation of Buddhist philosophical ideas in English and hence be more capable in serving His Holiness in an efficient way. So, so it's not so much that I had a personal quest that I was you know, following by choosing philosophy. It was more of a pragmatic decision to choose philosophy. Yeah. It seems as though if you're learning English, philosophy might be hard because it's ideologies, it's spirit-based. So some of the things we talk about aren't so concrete. It's not like I hold a cup. This is a cup. True, it's true. like, this is the <laughs> way I feel. So it's true. true. So it probably accelerated your understanding of English. Yes. And also uh, one of the challenges when you are translating across languages is not so much when you are translating everyday facts of experience, you know, that are easily translatable in ordinary, you know, sort of plain English. But where challenges really come is at the level of abstract ideas. And so there, looking back, my choice of taking philosophy as my focus of study at the undergraduate level was a good one because I came to realize is that, you know, as human beings, 
I do believe that there are, at a very fundamental level, certain commonalities which, if you want, constrain us to think about the world in a particular, in certain patterns, in certain broadly similar patterns. But at the same time, I think if you look at Buddhist philosophy versus Western philosophy, I mean, if Western philosophy is a vast world, but I mean, broadly, if we sort of contrast the two, the way in which we divide the world is slightly different, okay? And this division is something that is necessary because for human beings to make sense of, it, of their experience of the world, you have to create categories and impose that categories on your experience of the world, perception of the world, and then make sense. And this, you can call it the conceptual map if you want. So the conceptual mapping is never going to be exactly one-to-one correlation. But at a broader level, they tend to do the same kind of thing. Okay? So that was what was very interesting about studying Western philosophy after having been deeply immersed in Buddhist philosophy. And studying formal discipline like philosophy helped someone like me, whose native language is not English, to be able to think in abstract terms in English, which is really crucial for someone who's translating because translation, you know, is not naive reproduction, replication of one word into another different languages word. Often translation is more at the structural conceptual level. So to have those deeper appreciation of the language of English, in particularly in philosophy was really helpful. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That sounds great. So you're going to be speaking at Naropa University for the Lens Foundation. You're one of the guest speakers. And Naropa University is a contemplative education. So we have a different approach. I'm actually a graduate. I graduated in 2012. I have a contemplative Buddhist degree in BA. And I also studied music because I really love music as well. So I really found it profound having a contemplative approach to education. And I'm curious, could you speak upon how important it is nowadays in the world that we live in of a contemplative education approach to our, you know, endeavors when we're learning? Yeah, thank you for bringing that, bringing up that question, because, you know, if you look at, I mean, this is one area where His Holiness the Dalai Lama has been very vocal, the need to introduce some fundamental level reforms in the very not only the system, but the very philosophy behind education. And I think he's right, because one of the things is that up until very recently, the focus in modern education has been very, very kind of a material paradigm. And almost to the point where, even though they are humanities subjects, but you know, broadly, education is really seen as a way of preparing someone to be employed. So there's a very utilitarian attitude and furthermore, in education, there's very little focus paid on what it means to be a human, how to live. That initially, if you look at the Greek tradition, which is the original kind of roots of Western educational system, we do find instructions on ethics, philosophy, and so on and so forth. But over time, in modern version, at least, there's very little explicit focus And ethics sometimes is assumed to be part of religion. And since the education space is secular, 
then you don't need to teach ethics kind of, you know, there's that naive, you know, assumption. So all of this, you know, sort of makes it very difficult to bring up, you know, many aspects of education that are really crucial for human beings. You know, what is the ethical development of a child? What is the individual's responsibility towards others, you know, fellow humans and the world? How can we, you know, have a deeper self-awareness in relation to our own emotional life? And how can we sort of, you know, tap into the more positive aspects of human nature so that we can create a world that is kinder, more equitable, you know, a place of understanding. So all of these, you know, we may call contemplative, but contemplative I hear from my own personal uh, understanding. I understand the word contemplative as a way of bringing an approach that emphasizes self-awareness, paying attention, and also bringing conscious intention into what you do. And tempered with, you know, important fundamental human values that we share. And if we broadly mean this by the word contemplative, then clearly this is something that needs to be, you know, brought into any education system across the world. Because even though we may speak different languages, we may live in different parts of the world, but when it comes to fundamental human reality, we are all sharing this one small planet, which is now facing existential threat from climate crisis, as well as, you know, the pressures of globalization putting on all of us to really find a way to live where peaceful coexistence based on mutual respect and understanding becomes an important part of our challenge, important part of our requirement if we want to save the world, you know. So in all of these, some element of contemplative education has to be necessary. And things, you know, the skills that we can teach children about how to pay greater attention to one's own emotion, how to bring awareness into a situation, how to maintain a more mental composure in the face of a challenge, how to be more resilient, and how to treat others based on recognition of shared common human humanity. So all of these are really crucial issues. So I think you're lucky to have been able to go to a, a college that actually explicitly states these to be part of their educational approach. But I hope that you know more and more institutions, educational institutions will come to recognize. I mean, and one hopeful sign is that at least there is a cultural movement towards bringing social emotional learning into the education system. So social emotional learning does not do the whole thing, but I think it's a really good start because it starts with emphasis on awareness of one's own emotional life and social awareness of the need of others and human relationships. So I think a large part of what contemplative education aims to cultivate seems to be you know, uh, achieved through focusing on social emotional learning. So I'm quite optimistic that this movement is turning out to be quite successful. Beautiful. Yeah. And honestly, when I went to Naropa, I went to Naropa as a 27 year old. So I, I wasn't just out of high school. It was very foreign to me to have eye gazing practices, something I'm not used to. But now that I'm an adult and I'm stepping into my power and I'm more conscious in what's around me, 
I realize the importance of social emotional learning. And also what I'm hearing is the relationship to the content is beyond the content. It's a relationship to self. It's a relationship to others. And it's a relationship to the content. It's not just content. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. As you were saying, like repeating something. Yeah. I mean, an interesting thing about, uh, or it could be also seen as the challenging thing about these kind of education is that it's not so much content mastery. Because traditional education in many academic institutions is really content mastery. You you take notes of the lectures, you learn to regurgitate it, you reproduce them, you have lists. But contemplative education, including social-emotional learning, involves something beyond content learning. It involves doing it. And you learn by doing it. And a large part of that is also learning to embody it. Because you have to, you, without embodying these values, these you know aspects of education, then the transmission of them do not become that effective. So that's that's the interesting part about this. Beautiful. Okay, so we're gonna kind of like change the subject a little bit because I want to talk a little bit about translating. And so you've been translating for His Holiness the Dalai Lama for quite some time now, and I'm curious, how did you become the translator? Because it seemed like you became the translator while you're at Cambridge. And also, what kind of content do you translate for him? Is it like books? Is it conversations? Is it live events? Is it just personal event spaces? Or you just, you do all of the above? In what capacity do you show up, I guess? Well, actually, I, I began translating for him before my Cambridge years. It was in 1985. And it was more of a, it happened more out of a coincidence. I happened to be in Dharamsala. I was in my mid-twenties and um, His Holiness was scheduled to give a series of teachings and the translator that they have arranged was unable to make it on the first day of the teaching, which was already scheduled. And they were looking for someone to stand for that person. I happened to be in Dharamsala and the word got around that there is this young monk who has a reasonable good, reasonable command of English. Mm-hmm. So, And that's you. So that was me. And then I was plugged out of my seat where I was sitting outside in the veranda of the temple. So I was asked to translate. This then led to, of course, eventually becoming principal interpreter. In fact, my studies in Cambridge was primarily motivated by sort of, you know, uh, equipping myself with a greater efficiency to be able to serve the Dalai Lama in my translator's role. That was one of the principal motivations for going to Cambridge. But initially, I was traveling extensively with His Holiness. Uh, my travels began first in, within India, and then from 87 due for his international trips. So when he visited uh, North America, or UK, or other parts of Europe, especially when the on-stage language was in English, I would accompany him. And then every year in Dharamsala, there is a major spring teaching that he would give immediately after the Tibetan New Year and the prayer festivals are over. So then he would give sometimes running up to two weeks or three weeks teachings, which will be translated simultaneously. So I did that a couple of years, although I was based in South India. I was still a student at Ganden, so I would travel up to Dharamsala for the spring teachings. And then gradually, I also began to assist him on his major book projects. For example, like his um, Ethics for the New Millennium, which was a major book setting out his philosophy of, you know, uh, secular ethics in a kind of a more universal way, not granted in any particular religious 
beliefs or views. And then his um, other books, such as Universe in a Single Atom, which tells his story of engagement with science over many, many decades. And then Beyond Religion was another book that was a sequel to Ethics for the New Millennium. And then another book that I assisted him was, you know, Towards the True Kinship of Faiths, which is which tells his story of many years of engagement with the religious uh, leaders and religious communities. So it's an interreligious journey. So I had the privilege to serve him. And for these major book projects, I, you know, had to go to Dharamsala quite often to sit down with him days at a time, you know, sometimes two hour sessions in the afternoon. And uh, so it was a real privilege. So I assist him when he's traveling. And also another important series of conferences that I've had the privilege to serve him are the Mind and Life Dialogues, which began in 1987. And every two years, there was a major Mind and Life Dialogue, which takes place over a period of five days from Monday to Friday. So those, you know, I had the privilege to translate for him. So these are services that I offer him, yeah. A Mind and Life, is that with Dan Siegel? Dan Siegel presented at one of the, but the Mind and Life Institute is based right now in Charlottesville, Virginia. It used to be actually based in Boulder, Colorado. Oh, um, yeah. hometown. That's where I'm at right now. It moved to um, Charlottesville. Before that, it moved to Massachusetts. But it's been uh, there for a long, long time. And it's, the, it's, it's an organization that was co-founded by His Holiness with Francisco Varela, who's a, quite a well-known Chilean scientist in Paris. And then a businessman uh, local to Boulder by the name of Adam Angel. The three of them co-founded Mind and Life Institute and had been running these series of uh, dialogues with a group of scientists with the Solonists every year. Every time it's a different group of scientists depending upon the topic. And the extensive dialogues take place in, at his residence, Dalai Lama's residence in Dharamsala. And many of these have come out, the proceedings have come out in books. That's beautiful. I had no idea it was located in Boulder. So I just learned something new. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you've been the English interpreter for His Holiness for quite some time now. And you've obviously traveled the world. You've been by his side for a long time and you know him really well. And I'm curious, how has his understanding of English developed over that time? Because I'm sure at some point he's like got it going on and knows the language and just needs you for some reference. Yes. In fact, people will notice that quite often when he gives a public talk, he speaks entirely in English. So I'm there just as a, you know, standby, just in case needed. So his command of English is very good. I mean, of course, because he doesn't hang out like ordinary people in coffee shops and stuff. I mean, his fluency is not there. Whereas, you know, I had the opportunity to be in Cambridge and hang out and just be an ordinary lead, an ordinary life using English on a daily basis as part of my everyday life. But otherwise, I mean, if you look at His Holiness's range of vocabulary, it's really extensive. And in fact, when people present to him, even in scientific conferences, quite often we aim to have the presentations prepared by the scientists in such a way that His Holiness can follow the presentation entirely in English. Then when he responds and asks questions, then when he's digging deeper into Buddhist philosophy, then he might use me to assist him in the translation. But his command is actually really good. And, and of course, he's been exposed to the English language for a long, long time. And his vocabulary range is very, very vast. So, uh, and, and there I remember sometimes 
you know, we would be speaking and the formal events and I would be standing next to him and I didn't have to say a single word. So then, uh, you know, people who are listening to the Dalai Lama for the first time, wondering what is this <laughs> short guy doing next to him, <laughs> the small guy doing next to him. Yeah. Once I was at a luncheon and then when his holiness stood up, then I had to stand beside him. And then when the, it was over, he, I didn't have to do anything. So I came down and the, someone at the sitting at my table said, so why are you standing next to him, you know? So I said, well, you can guess that I'm just too sh small for a bodyguard. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm his, his interpreter just in I case. I mean, you he... never know. You, you <laughs> might have some, you know, Kung Fu it's in you true. or something. <laughs> I said, you can guess I'm not a bodyguard. I'm just too small for that. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So, okay, what you just said kind of leads into my next question. And I'm wondering, when you're interpreting English and Tibetan, there seems like a very big gap of talking about a computer or, or you know, things that are easy to talk about. Then, But then there's the ideologies, there's philosophies. And I'm curious, does Tibetan translate to English well when it comes to spirituality and or philosophies? Because it seems like the Dalai Lama has, you know, he can speak English, but then you come in when you're talking about more deeper spirituality spiritual concepts. Sure, sure. Ralph Waldo Emerson said something which I actually deeply agree. And he said that any important insight into the human nature, any profound experience that human beings have can be, you know, that is articulatable in one language should be translatable into another language. And I, I completely agree with him. So, uh, but this said, uh, it is almost impossible to be able to have a translation strategy where you completely mirror the two languages based on a one-to-one -one correspondence of words across the two languages. The, the translation doesn't work like this. Although some people strive to have that kind of fidelity to the literal, you know, uh, translation, but on the whole, most translators understand that that is, that is a myth, that is a kind of a, an ideal that is impossible. So the translation really takes place more at the level of phrases and sentence. And so what is conveyed in one sentence, I believe can be conveyed in another sentence. We may not use the exact number of words and sometimes a single word need to be translated in the, into a phrase. But I genuinely believe that you can convey the important message from one language into another. And the same goes for Tibetan and English. But there are very few areas where there are certain concepts which are very difficult to convey in another language in an immediate way. But those are fortunately very rare. And then, of course, notoriously, translation of poetry is very difficult because uh, poetry, a large part of poetic effect really comes through the aesthetic experience of the tone and energy of the language it is written in. And trying to capture that and to reproduce in a second language, that is a tough one. And similarly, there are literal aspects of a, of a language that is unique to a particular language and that I don't think can be replicable. So beyond these, you know, I think anything that is worth 
being communicated in one language should be translatable in another language. So, too, so far, I haven't really come across a situation where I say, this is impossible. To <laughs> I give <You> up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm just thinking about this right now is the actual words and the mirroring, like you said, might not translate well, but figuring out a phrase to distinguish what this one word is. But we as humans, we all have a soul. We all have feelings. We all have like the same mechanics, you could say. So we all have the ability to understand. And because we are human, we can fairly understand love, anger, respect, honesty. So if you're able to phrase it in such a way that the conceptual meaning can come out, then it is translatable in any language. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Great. And I totally believe, I mean, of course, some scholars might, I mean, there are some scholars who actually dispute, question any kind of universality. You know, that was one of the things about this whole enterprise, which people speak less of today, but postmodernism. One of the major challenges that postmodernism raised was the very idea of universal universalism. But I personally believe that given the biology of who we are as humans, and given the very similar evolutionary forces that has shaped us uh, as social creatures, there has got to be at a fundamental level certain important aspects that are universal. And now then go on to jump to say that there are cultural values, values that are true universally across all cultures. Those are kind of slightly more difficult claims to make. But at a fundamental level of human experience, I do believe there are features of who we are as human beings that are universal. And therefore, I agree with Paul Eggman, who really argued for universality of certain basic emotions. You know, he was criticized, but I do agree with him that, you know, when it comes to fundamental aspects of emotional life, uh, there may be even some very, very basic emotions that we share even with, not just among humans, but even with non-human primates. Given the similar biological you know, givens that we inherit. And therefore, any important insight into human condition has to touch upon those universal features of human life. And then, if it has been articulated in one language, it should be translatable. Because in the end, success or failure of translation is not about coming up with words. Success or failure of a translation has to be judged by the capacity of the understanding in the host language. If something is conveyed from Tibetan text into an English, and if the reader in English experiences the effect it is supposed to produce, then, then that translation is successful. <laughs> okay, I'm having a thought right now. There's languages that aren't vocal, they're more physical. So like if I was to hug someone, no matter what language you speak, you understand that someone exactly. is caring. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even animals. You True. can see like elephants are so loving of their, their young. And we as humans, we're witnessing love. We're seeing language happen. True. True. Exactly. So, I mean, that, that's why I think the you know, we sometimes tend to 
look at language as something very unique to human beings. And we are so obsessed by defining language purely in terms of words, symbols that we create. But in fact, language has to be better understood in terms of gradations of signification. You know, hugging is a kind of a language because you're expressing something. Language, ultimately, the role of language is to express something. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, and the expression is done through some kind of signification. And what is signified is the experience or the emotion. Okay. So then the nonverbal languages or nonverbal expressions, those are part of a signification symbols that human beings use. So if we understand language within that broader context, then we will understand that what is communicable in one formal language, kind of a, a language in a linguistic sense, should be translatable, conveyable in another language. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. So this kind of leads me to my next topic. We're going to go a little bit more compassion. So I just want to say one thing I've noticed about looking into you, researching you and like looking into your work and listening to your talks is you're such a compassionate person. And lately I've been watching a lot of politics and I was just like, my heart's kind of like, oh man, what's going on with the world? <laughs> and what I've realized is if you feel lost in the world and there's like loyalty and joy and respect are being lost, go talk to a Tibetan Buddhist. <laughs> there's so much hope and joy and love and compassion and even respecting parties that aren't treating people well. How much compassion they have and it's my remedy almost nowadays <laughs> is to is to like think about a tibetan buddhist because in your foundational approach is we are all good we're innately good and i resonate with that so well other than being sinner it's like i'm not a sinner like i want to do good i want to do good for everybody i have compassion but we need to cultivate compassion we need to develop it, you know, and then sometimes it's hard to see. We need to clean off the lens in which we look through and be able to do that. So my question to you is you are currently the chair of the Compassion Institute. And I'm curious, what inspired you to start this institute? And what are your like daily roles in this position? Well, thank you for the question. Well, it's not that I'm more compassionate person than compared to others. But one thing that I have dedicated to do and chosen to do is to really amplify the discourse on compassion so that people can bring greater awareness to its importance. Because Buddhist teachers, including especially Solon's Dalai Lama, has been reminding us that in addition to all the dark forces that we human beings naturally have, anger, jealousy, hatred, but we also have good qualities like compassion, empathy, forgiveness, ability to forgive, understand. So His Holiness has been very, very dedicated to proposing this idea that while we think of human nature, we should never forget lighter, positive, brighter side of human condition, which is this ability to connect with someone naturally, to be able to empathize even with this dangerous situation, and to cooperate. You know, so he sees cooperation as an expression, behavioral expression coming out of this ability and instinct to connect. And his holiness genuinely believes that human society and humanity as a whole will really be changed if we consciously seek to 
make that part of who we are more explicit, more forceful, even in thinking about our structure of our society, in thinking about policies that we will bring, thinking about how we treat international relations and all of this. So I think His Holiness is right. And my, you know, sort of hope, aspiration behind setting up Compassion Institute and developing the eight-week CCT Compassion Color Vision training when I was a visiting scholar at Stanford, all of these is really, from my side at least, an attempt to make part of the Dalai Lama's vision of spreading compassion more broadly, kind of, you know, real. So, uh, and um, what we try to do at Compassion Institute is that, I mean, first of all, Compassion Institute is the institutional home for CCT, which is an eight-week compassion training program. And I genuinely believe that it is important for something like this program. There should be an institutional home that keeps an eye on the integrity and the quality of the program that has been developed, which has been tested, verified, you know, findings have been reported. So, so Compassion Institute trains the instructors who are then certified to offer this course. It's an eight-week class. And then more specifically, one of my aspirations, which we are now able to do, is to find ways to adapt these secular compassion training to specific important sectors of society like healthcare, law enforcement, education. So Compassion Institute has taken on three focus areas where we adapt compassion training and bring these programs. So we have a program called Courageous Heart, and it's a program specifically designed for law enforcement officers. You know, it's, it's adapted from the eight-week extensive course, but it is a specialized program. And the aim is to train officers to be able to bring more awareness into their emotion and also learn to pay, be more mindful and, and then connect with their intention. Because, you know, almost all people who are in public service, one of their primary motives have been to be to serve society. But in the, in the challenges of everyday work, people often lose connection with that original intention that brought them there. So the compassion training helps to keep that spark alive. And then also learning ways in which you can see the other person first and foremost at the fundamental human level, just like me. So there are clearly important implications for bringing program like this. Fortunately, our program has now been certified by California Peace Officers Training Standard Post. So it should be available across the state, hopefully with other states as well. And then we have a special program developed for helping healthcare professionals deal with the problem of burnout. And it's called Caring from Inside Out. So it's again adapted from our CCT. And then on the education side, we are collaborating with uh, Rene Crown Institute, which is at Colorado University, and collaborating with the School of Education there to develop a course on compassion and dignity for the in-service teachers, which can contribute towards their master's program. So our hope through the Institute is to find ways to bring explicit compassion-based approaches in the key sectors, so that that way it's, a, it's kind of a, a more strategic approach so that we don't rely entirely on individual self-selection self and 
So, of course, we have to broaden it by offering the public courses across widely through our network of instructors. But at the same time, if we are serious of changing society, we need to start looking at key sectors, and especially at the public service sectors, because their interaction with the public is key part of their everyday life. And compassion, the most important aspect of compassion, it's, it's relationality. It is about how you treat the fellow human being in front of you. How can you bring your best into that interaction? So anything that involves public service, being able to bring something like compassion training can have a huge benefit, both to the officials themselves, but also to the recipients of that interaction from the general public side. I mean, imagine if a physician goes through a compassion training and is able to bring all the skills of empathy, attentive listening, understanding, and sense of concern and clarity into the interaction with patients, the patient's experience will be completely different. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, I mean, you know, so we know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a no brainer. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so, so, but we do need organizations that are dedicated to systematically thinking out, doing the hard legwork of building up relationship, making the case, raising money, you know, training the trainers. So this is why Compassion Institute was set up. And I, you know, am the chair. I don't do the day-to-day -day running. It's based in California. We have a, a very efficient executive director who runs by the name of, who runs the organization by the name of Stephen Butler. And I'm very confident that, um, especially after he took over, I'm feeling very confident that we are going to be quite successful. Beautiful. Doing the good work. So as you were speaking, what I'm noticing is compassion isn't something that we don't have and we have to learn how to have. It's something we already have. We always have it. So what we have to do is come back to our foundational roots of something that is innately already in us. Exactly. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about compassion. It's not a new skill we have to learn. But what we have to learn is to how to make it more intentional and then how to apply it and then also deal with some of the other forces that tend to undermine it coming the way like, you know, sort of division, discrimination, all of these are forces in human nature that come in the way of us being able to express our compassionate nature. Yes. Okay. So we're talking about compassion and compassion usually seen as something that is outside of us and being used to alleviate suffering to others, right? Because we're talking about public working services, police officers, True. fire department, True. healthcare workers. But sometimes we forget to be compassionate to ourselves. And we bypass our needs. So I'm, what I'm curious about is what are some ways to notice this before it becomes an issue in our lives? And how can we consciously develop a skill to be compassionate to others while also being compassionate to ourselves? Because sometimes if we try to be compassionate to others, it actually might drain us a bit. It's true. So how can we withhold it within ourselves? I think here a part of the challenge in the West is the West's tendency to kind of dichotomize things. So, for example, in the West, we tend to overemphasize the self and others distinction. And also when we think of helping others, we tend to think exclusively in terms of others rather than our interrelationship with the other who we are helping. So part of the problem is really coming from there. But you are making, raising an important point, which is about really the legitimate need for self-care. And sometimes in the West, 
people seem to feel that if I, you know, if I think about my own needs and my own welfare, I'm being selfish. And if I want to be compassionate, I shouldn't be thinking about my own needs and my own welfare. So that's, again, that sort of conflict is coming from this very strict, strong dichotomy of self and others. In fact, my suggestion would be to look at the question of one's own self-care needs within the broader context of compassion, because compassion, of course, is focused on others, but also compassion includes your ability to relate to your own suffering and situation as well. And in fact, if you are truly compassionate and truly altruistic, then the need to take care of your own self becomes necessary for you to be able to make yourself resilient, be available for others. Whereas if you ignore your own need, and part of that is, the solution to that is largely bringing self-awareness. If you develop greater self-awareness, you begin to recognize what burns you, what tires you, when it's time to refresh yourself. So self-compassion issue to a large extent is really about bringing self-awareness into our own situation. And, and we should not couch the issue of self-compassion and self-care independent of our compassion for others. In fact, my suggestion would be to actually see it as part of that broader in a commitment to be compassionate. And then to be compassionate efficiently, then we also need to have a healthy dose of self-compassion and ability to you know, take care of our own needs. And once we see it in this way, there will be no conflict because otherwise we end up creating a sort of a false dichotomy. You know, should I be self-compassionate or should I be ignore myself and be compassionate towards others? So that kind of false dichotomy is in the long run not really helpful. Mm, beautiful. Okay, so I just got one more question for you. And what I'm curious about is when, like, maybe this is a Western thing, and I don't know, maybe there's other regions that feel this, but compassion can seem weak. Compassion seems not something that could deal with big situations. Like, we need to, we need to attack things a little bit differently. And so when teaching compassion as, like, a foundational base in which we act upon, instead of acting from other qualities that aren't serving our ultimate well-being— I'm wondering how this approach can benefit us as individuals in a community and a society. So like, you know, trying to teach a law enforcement person compassion instead of like put them in cuffs, put them in the back of the car, like rough yes, them up yeah. a bit. They messed me up. Like, how is that powerful? How is this important? How is it not weak? Yeah. Well, that's a good question, actually. Um you know, I mean, this is one area where His Holiness is very, very articulate. His Holiness says that compassion is not a weakness because he, he says compassion is a strength because compassion, choosing compassion makes you open yourself to be vulnerable in the situation and also giving the other person benefit of the doubt. Whereas choosing anger instead is an easier option. You know, you just let your anger out. And so it's an easier, a simpler approach. So he says that choosing compassion requires courage, and he's right. But the power of compassion really lies in, in a biggest, for example, even in the case of law enforcement, what is the end objective? The end objective is to be able to 
sort of really control the situation, okay? And so then in the case of an interaction with someone, if you use force, you're using fear as a primary tool of sort of, you know, uh, persuading the other person. But if you instead use a compassion-based approach, which would be then indicating that you are willing to listen to this, their side of the story, you are sort of indicating to the other person that you are also aware of their need for safety, okay? Because often in tensed situation, people do things impulsively without understanding. And impulsive action out of fear creates a huge mess. So the, one of the skills that the law enforcement office can learn through this kind of training is to diffuse the immediate tension so that people can bring their composure into a situation, okay? Similarly, in major situations, you know, choosing compassion does not ask us not to respond strongly against an unjust action. What it is saying is that when we choose that strong action, don't choose it out of anger. Don't choose it out of fear. I see, yeah. Choose it out of an understanding mm. while remembering the humanity of the other person. You know, quite often people do horrible things because they're in pain, because they're afraid, okay, because they're confused. So, of course, self-protection is important. You have to make sure that danger for your own life is, you know, pre you know prevented. But once you are able to create that, then the impact is very different. I mean, there are stories from the Iraq war where when American soldiers were caught themselves in a very tense situation, you know, the leader of the, the soldiers being able to understand the cultural context, put the weapon head of the gun down, bowing down, and, you know, just creating, sort of releasing that tension initially has completely changed stories there. So I think this is where bringing compassion, because it asks us to bring clearer understanding and awareness into a situation, it's a, it's a tougher one. But the long-term effect would be very different, actually. Mm. I'm almost kind of noticing that anger is reactive. And when it comes to compassion, if we don't practice or study or apply it, then it's more of the way, let's see how I feel, how it affects me, and then react. Exactly, yeah. We need to investigate how it's responding to us and also understanding how you're saying is loving the other person. Like nobody really means to do bad yeah. things. Sure. We might do bad things. We don't wake up and like, I'm going to be bad today. Exactly. Nobody wants to yeah. do that. Yeah. We want to yeah. be good yeah. and we want to be good to people. So practicing compassion has the ability to like take a breath and i think this is why there's like meditation practices of like slowing down because we're, exactly. we're such yeah. reactive beings and exactly the, the yeah. world like hardens you to be reactive exactly yeah 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 beautifully put yeah all right so that's our podcast and I feel so inspired. I like, I just feel like my compassion meter is off the charts right now. <laughs> and it's, it was just so beautiful talking with you. And you're just making me feel all the love and all the, the good stuff. And I just love how you can like talk about your journey, your educational past. And I look forward to your talk tomorrow at Naropa. 
And I just really appreciate you speaking on our podcast today. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for including me in, in your series of podcasts. Thank you. Beautiful. All right. Take care. Take care too. Yeah. Bye-bye. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.